Hello, all you crime cats and kittens. A little Carol Baskin asked for you. <laughs> Welcome to the Crime Cat. I am your host, Lisa B. Speaking of Carol Baskin and Tiger King theme, I can't believe it's been almost four years since the COVID-19 pandemic started, or very close to it being the four-year anniversary. And I just, I can't believe that. It happened, uh, it went by pretty fast, I do have to say. Felt like it was yesterday that we were being told that lockdown was going to be just two weeks long, and here we are now all still living very different lives than before the pandemic. So anyways, today I have an interesting case for you. Um, it is the story and the case of Colleen Stan, also known as the girl in the box. So let's get into it. Colleen J. Stan was born on December 31st, 1956 in Eugene, Oregon. And it was there in Eugene that in 1977, at 20 years old, that Colleen decided she would hitchhike to a friend's birthday party in Northern California. Now, hitchhiking, and I believe I've touched on this before, it was something that most people would never do anymore these days, but it was really quite common practice back in the 70s. So on May 19th, specifically 1977, Colleen was trying to catch a ride to that party. She stated that she was an experienced hitchhiker, and in fact, she had let two rides go before accepting a ride with a man, his wife, and a baby, and this was on Interstate 5. Those people were 23-year-old Cameron, who was a lumber mill worker at Diamond International Lumber Mill, and his wife, 19-year-old Janice Hooker. She felt comfortable accepting the ride from Cameron when he pulled over and rolled down the window because his wife and his baby were there, and the baby was only about a couple of months old, so she felt safe and felt that it was okay. So she climbed into their blue van. She would later claim, quote, The husband looked dirty like he just got off of work. His young wife was holding their baby and stated, Yeah, we'll give you a ride. I felt this was a good ride, a safe ride after evaluating the situation. When they stopped at a gas station along the way and Colleen went to use a restroom, a voice in her head, in her gut, told her to run and jump out of the window and never look back. But she convinced herself to calm down and went back to the car. That gut feeling, I mean, we've all had them, I'm sure, and the gut, that initial feeling that you get, that usually never leads you down the wrong path. So never ignore it. But Colleen did ignore it. She gets back into their car, their van, despite her hesitations, and they continue on when Cameron pulls off into a secluded area off the highway. Things quickly took a horrible turn as he put a knife to her throat and then proceeded to place a head box on her. Now, I'm going to talk about this box more later, and I'll definitely post a picture of it. It was designed to keep out all light, sound, and fresh air from entering. It was a 20-pound contraption that was homemade by Cameron with a padded-like material on the inside. Immediately, once this box was affixed to her head, she was plunged into complete darkness and silence. Now, I'm assuming once they got out of this secluded area that they had her lie down in the back seat or something so she wouldn't be seen with this huge box on her head, but there is no information uh, about that specifically, but it's just something that 
once you see a picture of this box, I mean, there's no way if she was driving down a busy highway that it would go unnoticed. They drove back to the hooker's house in Red Bluff, California, which is about a two and a half hour drive from the Oregon border and about five and a half hours from Eugene. And for the next seven years, Colleen would be held as their victim. Cameron and Janice actually went out that day with their baby with the intention of capturing a victim that Cameron could act out his bondage fantasies with. Because up until this point, Janice had been on the other end of his fantasies, and Janice was totally okay with them capturing a victim, so she wouldn't have to do it anymore. It was an agreement between him and Janice, his wife, that they would capture a slave. You know, that's like casual, sitting-around-the-dinner-table conversation. Eventually, they arrived to the hooker's house, where Colleen was led downstairs to a cellar where she would end up being tortured. But first, she was tied to the ceiling by her wrists, and she was blindfolded. Then, she would be beaten, electrocuted, whipped, and burned. Initially, despite the bondage fantasy agreement, Cameron was not allowed, per Janice, to have any sexual penetration activity with Colleen. But Colleen was rather forced to watch... Um, and at sometimes be blindfolded as the couple had sex underneath her um, after they tortured her. But that would all end up changing. And she was tied up there for multiple hours of a day. And to take care of her bodily functions, you can say, she was given a bedpan that was positioned under her feet. Absolutely horrible and disgusting. When the family moved to a mobile home, also in Red Bluff, Colleen would be kept in a coffin-like wooden box under the couple's bed for up to 23 hours per day. And this is where that terrible moniker comes from that I mentioned at the top of the show, the girl in the box. And this really looked exactly like a wooden coffin would look like. I'll also post pictures of it. The crazy thing is, you remember from the beginning, the couple had a young daughter and it would soon be followed by a second daughter when Janice gave birth on the waterbed while Colleen was locked in the coffin box underneath the bed. And these daughters had no idea that Colleen was being held against her will and living in their home. Colleen was allowed out about an hour or two each day in which she would be cleaning and she would babysit for the girls. At this time, that non-sexual contact agreement was kind of long gone. Really, the agreement was specifically, per Janice's wishes, to not have vaginal sex with Colleen, and this is when Cameron began orally raping Colleen regularly as a form of torture, in addition to the beatings, the burning, and all that horrendous stuff. Since he technically didn't want to break the contract with his wife, this sick, demented monster would rape her vaginally and anally with objects. I guess it was some sort of sick loophole of his. Colleen, as she would later say, never knew what to expect when she was taken out of the box, since she would state she was kept in the dark, both physically and mentally. Besides the physical torture, Colleen was terrified about Cameron's claim that he was part of a satanic organization known as The Company. She was told that this was a powerful organization that watched over her and was also watching over her family, too. Cameron even went as far as to say that her family's house was bugged. They were really, really watching her family's every move. 
And that is how he kept Colleen obeying all of his orders with no attempts at escaping. She was terrified, absolutely terrified that her family would be harmed or worse. She even signed a contract in January of 1978 stating that she was their slave who would be called Kay. In this contract, she was not allowed to speak without permission, and she had to call Cameron master. Gross. Colleen would later state about the contract, quote, basically, he said he owned my body and my soul, end quote. Apparently, Cameron also kept a photo of this woman, Marie Elizabeth Spanhacky, Spanhake, not really sure how to pronounce her last name, and this was a previous victim whose body was never found. And he kept it propped up under the bed and inside of the box um, in view. So Colleen was able to look at this, maybe to serve as a warning to comply and behave, or you'll just also become a photo. According to a later confession by Janice, they also abducted this woman and placed one of those head boxes on her as well. She had gone through the same exact tie-up basement torture as Colleen did, but she would not stop screaming and allegedly Cameron attempted to cut out her vocal cords and then ended up strangling her. According to Janice, they buried her body in a shallow grave in a state park. Marie Elizabeth was 18 when she went missing in Chico, California, and she had gotten into an argument with her then-boyfriend John Baruth at a local flea market. To blow off some steam and kind of keep clear of him, she decided to walk home, but she would never be seen again. Baruth, her boyfriend, was eventually cleared of any wrongdoing, and then that was it. There were no leads, and the case went completely cold. At one point, Cameron handed Colleen a gun, to which Cameron told her, this is to see if you'll do what I say, and that's a quote, and he told Colleen, instructed her to put the gun in her mouth and pull the trigger, which she did because she was terrified of him. Nothing happened, thank goodness, and he knew at this time that she was completely brainwashed. Colleen would continue to obey Cameron, and due to that, she was earning more and more freedom outside of her box captivity. She was allowed to work in the garden, as well as help Cameron in the building of an underground dungeon of sorts for what he would say would be more eventual slaves. But perhaps one of the craziest things about this story is that Cameron let Colleen visit her family in 1981. I mean, can you imagine the fear that she was feeling and the amount of brainwashing she had that he was confident of her going to visit her family and not say anything? I mean, that is that is crazy and so hard to think about. But she went to visit her family, and there's not a lot of information about this, but the very next day, which is perhaps even more crazy, Colleen returned for a visit with Cameron posing as her boyfriend. So the family is not exactly, like I said, it's about a five and a half hour drive from Eugene to Red Bluff, California. So they must have gotten a hotel or stayed in a in his vehicle or something for him to you know return the next day with her. Um, and I'm going to post this as well. There's a, a photo of that her family took of Cameron and Colleen, and the two of them are smiling. And it's just so creepy because obviously you know what's going on. But, I mean, under normal circumstances, this is a photo which looks like just a normal, happy, smiling couple. But her family was not totally buying it. Colleen would later say 
she was just so happy to see her family. And that is where this uh, genuine smile was. That's where that came from. She was just so happy to see her family. Not to be with Cameron, but I mean, she's been away for so long now. And I can't imagine the joy of seeing your family. Now, she, of course, did not reveal her situation because she was terrified of the company. Her family would later say that they thought that she was involved in a cult because of her homemade clothes, her complete lack of communication over the years, and her lack of money. But they were afraid to press her as they were scared that this may make her disappear for good. I mean, they must have been really, truly shocked after all this time and without hearing anything from her. And Colleen just did what she had to do, got to see her family, had to act happy. After all, anything else that she could have done, she would have thought would have been problematic for her family. It could have got them harmed. It could have got them killed from the company that she was so afraid of. Now, as soon as all of this occurred, along with all the other freedoms she had been given, Cameron had a change of heart. He feared he was giving her too much. And so for the next three years, Colleen would be locked in that wooden prison for 23 hours a day with strict instructions to lie still and not make any noise. And again, she is living in this box underneath the couple's waterbed in their mobile home. She survived on scraps of food and had the most difficult time in the summer weather with little air to breathe and temperatures reaching over 100 degrees inside of the wooden box. Their children were told that Kay had gone home, but you know, they what what else would they have known? They didn't even they didn't know she was living there when she had more time outside of the box. And when she was allowed out for that one hour a day, it was pretty much just to feed her and to torture her. So in 1983, almost three years rounding up, Colleen was reintroduced to the children and to the neighbors. She was even allowed to resume some freedoms and more because this time because she was actually allowed to get a job as a maid in a motel. Although she was not allowed to keep any of her wages, all of that had to go to Cameron. At this time, Cameron wanted Colleen as a second wife. And this, this right here, something awoken in Janice. Janice had started to feel badly and feel guilty about what they had done to Colleen. She actually confided in her minister, this is Janice, who advised her to leave Cameron and to let Colleen go. And I also hope would have advised her to report Cameron, but who knows. And Janice then had a confession to make to Colleen when the two of them were alone. Janice told Colleen that she too had been tortured, brainwashed, and called a whore by Cameron over the years, and that she had survived by compartmentalizing this abuse and by just being in denial. By August of 1984, I guess everything had just gotten to her, and she made a vital decision, and that was to let Colleen know that the company did not exist. Now, she said it was a lie, but in other sources, um, Janice said uh, allegedly told Colleen that the company did exist, but that Cameron had nothing to do with it. Since Colleen literally only stayed for all these seven years based on this info solely about the company, she wasted no time in getting out. She would say, quote, I didn't feel any anger towards Cameron or Janice while I was held captive. The only emotion I felt was terror. But once I started to feel safe again, the anger came, end quote. 
She got herself to a bus station, had her family wire her money, and called Cameron to tell him she was leaving, for which he burst into tears. She then took a bus back home to Eugene, Oregon. But she didn't call the police and report her ordeal. I mean, granted, she was under so much physical and emotional trauma, but she instead continued to call Cameron regularly, and this was due to a request from Janice, who wanted to give her husband time to try and reform instead of reporting him to the police. And Colleen, you know, Janice was also her abuser in a way, and uh, she complied. She listened to this. However, three months later, who knows what kind of torture Janice was going through in that house, that it was just her again. She called the police herself on her husband. Janice reported to Lieutenant Jerry D. Brown of the Red Bluff Police Department that Cameron had kidnapped, tortured, and murdered Marie Elizabeth Span Hake, who had disappeared on January 31, 1976, the woman I told you about earlier. Her body was not able to be recovered. I'm not sure if Janice led the police to the area that they said they buried the body. I mean, this was going back, you know, some time, so maybe she couldn't exactly pinpoint the location, but... This, and due to the lack of physical proof, no murder charges were able to be brought. And of course, she told him about Colleen. Janice would testify against her husband as a star witness at his trial in 1985 for full immunity. She claimed she was also a victim of her husband's abuse, and she was, but she still did play a role. It's a fine line, and people will have different opinions on her role, but... I mean, I feel that I understand she was working with the prosecution, so she did get immunity. And she was, it it seemed like she was a victim herself. Cameron admitted to kidnapping Colleen and keeping her in a box, but insisted the sex was consensual and used the fact that Colleen had never left. However, the prosecution provided a ton of evidence. The head box, which again is just horrendous. It's truly something of a nightmare. Um, So they presented the box, the coffin-like box that she was kept in, photos of Colleen in bondage, and the slavery contract, amongst uh, many other things. Cameron was found guilty and sentenced by San Mateo County Superior Court Judge Clarence Knight to consecutive prison terms totaling 104 years for sexual assaults, kidnapping, and using a knife in the process. The judge stated that Cameron was, quote, the most dangerous psychopath I have ever encountered, end quote. On April 16th, 2015, his request for parole was denied. He will be eligible for another parole hearing in 2030. The most recent reports that I could find say that Cameron Hooker will be going on trial March 9th of this year, 2024, and the trial is expected to last for two weeks. Prosecutors are trying to have him designated as a sexually violent predator, which would prevent him from being released. This is an extremely difficult thing to be accomplished per what I was reading, and it is safe for the worst of the worst. When asked how she survived and what her will was like, Colleen would say, quote, You just remove yourself from the real situation going on and you go somewhere else. You go somewhere pleasant around people you love, whatever makes you happy. End quote. Janice went back to her maiden name and works as a social worker in California and tries to keep a low profile. 
Despite helping Colleen escape and both women living in California, there is no contact between her and Colleen. I mean, can you even imagine? Colleen has worked very hard over the years to get her life back and move on, with the help of a lot of therapy. She suffers from chronic back and shoulder pain as a result of her confinement and being crammed in the box, the wooden box, for seven years, and she has a child of her own, a daughter. She would say, life today is good, and this is a quote, you have to learn how to live in the now and not let the past drag you back. She studied for an accounting degree and began working as an office manager in Northern California and also changed her name, I guess, I'm assuming also to try and somewhat keep a low profile. But unfortunately for Colleen, she had a few failed marriages and that one child that she has is sadly in jail for reasons I could not find. But she also joined and volunteered for Reading Women's Refuge Center, which is a center for abused women. What Colleen stated was the most shocking thing coming out of captivity is how ungrateful she felt people were. Quote, People had nice jobs and houses and had plenty, but they seemed so unhappy. They wanted more. I was coming out of a situation where I had nothing, and being exposed to these people who had so much and were unappreciative of it and complaining, I thought, my God, why don't they see how blessed they are? End quote. Colleen had received therapy from Dr. Christopher Hatcher in San Francisco, who has since passed away. She called him her savior in working through all of her trauma. Once Colleen had heard about J.C. Dugard, she knew she wanted to reach out and assist in any way she could. She had been trying to get in touch with J.C.'s mother and had actually met her mother on a talk show years prior. Quote, I read that she felt guilty, but, could, but she should not feel that way. You can't be with someone 18 years and not have an attachment. I hope I get the opportunity to talk to her and tell her she did nothing wrong. She did everything right. She is alive, end quote. I'm not sure if the two ever did meet, but I certainly hope that they did or they could in the future. But I love how she turned her harrowing life story into a tale of help and hope for others. She is truly an amazing woman. And that is the story of Colleen Stan. I'm not sure what her, her new last name is. I'm sure that's information she doesn't want anybody to know. But that is a really, truly nightmare story of the girl in the box tale. And how horrendous is that? I can't imagine. And the fact that she is trying to turn um, her story into help for others by volunteering at that women's center. I mean, that's really, when you go through something as horrendous as that, you could either curl up in a ball and let it get to you and let it dictate who you are, or you can take that information and bring it out to the world and try to help others with your story. And I just love that she is doing that. Okay, so here is your cat fact. Because a male cat has only one X gene, if that X chromosome has the orange gene, he will be orange. That This means that if an orange female cat has a litter of kittens, all the males will be orange, regardless of their dad's color. But a female cat will only be orange if both of those X chromosomes carry the orange color, meaning both parents must be orange to create an orange female kitten. It's a guesstimate that 2-5% to of all cats are orange. So if you have an orange female, they are an elite club. Yes, for orange cat energy. I love that. Thank you so much for listening. 
as always, I really, really appreciate it. If you can just do me a big favor, and that would be to rate and review the podcast, that really, really helps. And you know where to find me. You can listen to my website, the buzz, um, whoops, that is not it. <laughs> my website, the crime cat podcast at buzzsprout.com. You can listen on iHeartRadio and Spotify. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook at the crime cat podcast, as well as send me a Gmail. If you have any case suggestions, any questions, the crime cat podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. I will see you next time with a new case. Bye.